From New York's Hudson River Valley, I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Read 650 celebrates writers and the spoken word, five minutes and 650 words at a time. On today's show, we explore the theme of immigration with personal perspectives from writers Anna Perrette, Mihai Grunfeld, and Ellen Nenner. In the 1980s, on a flight to America, we were required to fill in a form for the Immigration and Naturalization Service, infamous for its officious bureaucracy and its downright nastiness. We left Romania two weeks ago, and this is the last step of our escape, getting from Bratislava and Czechoslovakia to Vienna in Austria. When he came to New York, he spoke very little English and understood even less. Two or three movies a day taught him enough to pass the exams he needed to continue his medical studies. And on today's Between the Lines segment, Colin Broderick describes the winding and sometimes treacherous journey from being a brand new immigrant to the U.S. to finally realizing his dream. The New York I arrived in 28 years ago was one of abandoned buildings, battered window shades and blackened shells along the highway. That's all just ahead on Read 650. America was built and sustained by immigrants. People from all corners of the globe whose struggles and contributions made America what and who it is today. For today's show, we've selected three personal stories from a live event we build as Immigration Nation, with performances recorded at the Ossie Davis Theater in New Rochelle, New York. We begin with Anna Perrette, who shares her memories and impressions upon arriving in the U.S. from the U.K. Here's Anna on stage performing her essay, I Am U.K. In the 1980s, on a flight to America, we were required to fill in a form for the Immigration and Naturalization Service, infamous for its officious bureaucracy and its downright nastiness. We declared, with straight faces, that we had not obtained our visas fraudulently and that we had never been involved in genocide. We were required to state our nationality. I am from England, a country in the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. This means that I am English. According to my passport, my citizenship is British. The choice was clear, English or British. Both were accurate. I shambled off the plane and joined the long, static line of British nationals herded between a thick rope and the wall waiting to go through immigration. Ahead of me, a drama unfolded. Voices were raised. A stunned-looking young woman, clutching a heavy coat and an overstuffed carry-on bag, pressed back up the queue. You have to put UK, she sniffed. If you don't put UK, they send you to the back. UK is not a nationality. (laughs) Squeeze in here, someone said, making space for her. Then I overheard a snigger and a stage whispered, unless you've committed genocide. Surprisingly quick for such a heavy person, a uniformed official appeared alongside them on the other side of the rope. No cutting, she growled, back of the line. We flattened against the wall to allow the young woman through. Take one and pass them along, we UKs said, as we handed a stack of replacement forms back up the queue. Anyone got a pen? 
Years later, I applied for American, I mean US, citizenship, <laughs> a process which involves a test and an interrogation, I mean interview. A preppy professional in a mid-floor office in downtown San Francisco asked me to write a sentence in English. I must have looked blank because he said, oh, I don't know, write, I am a mother. I wrote, I am a very good mother, and passed. An envelope waited on my assigned seat at the ceremony at the Masonic Center. It contained my personalized naturalization certificate and a U.S. passport application form. A Russian, dressed smartly in 1970s flares, sat on my left. The tiny East Asian woman to my right spoke such appalling English that I wondered how she had managed to write, I am a mother. <laughs> Perhaps she wasn't. <laughs> I felt like a fraud. I wasn't escaping financial or political hardship. I was naturalizing because I feared that one day a capricious president might revoke my so-called permanent residency status, want my green card back, and separate me from my family, my children. I wouldn't even have to give up my UK citizenship. I wanted to call two great countries home. There was a shuffling, some coughs, as a pretty high schooler in a long black dress took the stage. As she sang The Star-Spangled Banner, 2,000 now-silent congregants squared their shoulders, proud of themselves. Francis Scott Key. It was on the test. <laughs> a Japanese-American woman, an elected official of the city, told us her grandparents' immigration story, welcomed us to the US, and reminded us to vote. An elegant Cuban gentleman in a cream suit and spectator shoes, two rows in front of me, stepped up to the podium and expressed his gratitude to America. In unison, we pledged our allegiance. After the event, after a representative had announced in broken English that the INS was hiring and that job interviews were being held in the foyer, I strode out of the hall, truly believing that there could not have been an occasion handled with more efficiency, warmth, and grace than the ceremony hosted by the Immigration and Naturalization Service. A UK has never felt more welcome. Anna Perrette came to New York as an investment banker transferred from London and has now lived in America for over 20 years, in Palo Alto, California, Washington, D.C., and New York City. Anna and her husband currently live in Larchmont, New York, where Anna writes and serves as a naturalist at Sheldrake Environmental Center. Mihai Grunfeld was still a teenager when he and his brother staged a daring and dangerous escape from dictator Nicolae Ceausescu's communist Romania, leaving behind everything that was familiar, including their unsuspecting parents. This is writer Mihai Grunfeld reading his essay, across the border. My brother Ferko and I board the seven o'clock train for Vienna and settle in a cold and empty compartment. We try to be inconspicuous and act like passengers accustomed to traveling, but I'm just 18, poor, unwashed and unshaven. My pants are wrinkled and I have a toothache. We left Romania two weeks ago, and this is the last step of our escape. 
getting from Bratislava and Czechoslovakia to Vienna in Austria. Our train starts off slowly, as if telling me that I must be patient. We check, we change tracks in a small deserted town with just a few snow-covered houses. Then we go ahead for a few minutes. Then back. Across from me, Ferko is reading calmly. He wet and combed his hair this morning in the bathroom. In his dark suit and barely wrinkled shirt, he looks as tall and handsome as ever. I settle down somehow, cuddle up in the corner, covering my face and my pain with a thick window curtain. Suddenly, voices awaken me. A tall guard dressed in a green uniform speaks to us. My brother hands both passports over. The guard has wide shoulders, light blue eyes, and a square, powerful jaw. He takes the documents and looks at them, page by page, examining them carefully. His face is frozen. He glances up, takes a step towards me, and moves the curtain that has been partly covering my face. I point to my swollen jaw. He just looks at me, then returns the passports to my brother and leaves the compartment with a short army salute. What's happening, I ask, trying to breathe again. Through the hall windows, I catch a glimpse of several armed guards going along the train with a huge German shepherd looking under it. Suddenly, I feel the jolt of the, of the train taking off. Through the window, the telephone poles are passing us, wires going up and down, up and down. I can hear the rhythm, the rhythmic sound of the wheels beating like my heart. And all of a sudden, the realization comes to me. We must have crossed the border. Ferko's dear, familiar face slowly breaks into a smile, a huge smile. I stand up and hug him. We're laughing nervously, turning around on one spot like a slow top. A few moments pass. Then, I don't know what to do anymore. I look through the window, hungry for a different landscape. I want to see something that tells me that I'm free, that a completely new life is starting for me. I see fields and fields covered in fresh snow, broken up every now and then by dark clumps of trees. Nothing looks different. Though, when I pay close attention, I notice that the houses in the distance are large. It doesn't make sense that country houses owned by peasants are several stories high. This is it. We are in Austria. Farmhouses, country roads, and cars. My tooth doesn't hurt anymore. We eat some stale bread and two apples. The combination tastes delicious. I think of Vienna, of being in the street and walking without any destination. Now I'm excited, and I don't want to fall asleep and miss anything. Ferko and I chat a little, but soon fall into a content silence and let time go by as a monotonous landscape unrolls before our open eyes. The journey Mihai Grunfeld began when he fled Romania took him to Israel, Italy, Sweden, and Canada in search of a home in the West. Settled in the United States, 
He obtained his PhD from the University of California at Berkeley and worked for years as a professor of Spanish and Latin American literature at Vassar College. His published books include the memoir, Leaving, Memories of Romania, and his novel was adapted into a play entitled The Dressmaker's Secret, which enjoyed a month-long sold-out run in New York City. He lives with his family in Poughkeepsie, New York, where he continues to write and chairs the Lifelong Learning Institute at Vassar College. Ellen Nenner's husband, Ray, was a Polish immigrant and Holocaust survivor. After he was liberated from a Nazi concentration camp, he graduated from medical school in Munich and immigrated to the United States. For our Immigration Nation show, Ellen shared memories of Ray on stage at the Ossie Davis Theater in her essay, The Greener. I'm in my garden in Truro, a small town wedged between Wellfleet and Provincetown on the Outer Cape. September has brought its usual cold weather. I have started to convert the house from the focus of dinner parties and family visits from a vacation option for widowed friends not yet comfortable or smart enough to reach out to live what's left of life to a state of suspension. All systems off, bird feeders collected, washed, and put in the lower basement. The house will now sleep until early next May. I spend some time pruning and tidying what is left of my heirloom tomato plants. There is nothing healthy or alive now, no fruit, only wasted bodies with thin, scrawny arms and stems so weak and dehydrated that they no longer have the strength to remain upright. So why am I bent over, snipping here and there, making things neat, sprucing up plants whose lives are spent? I'm thinking of another day, another time, I am at home in New York, standing in Ray's clothes closet, deciding how I should dress his body. He is in the funeral home, awaiting my decision. The casket will be closed. Our daughters, Jackie and Lisa, have already said their final goodbyes at the hospital. Who would see him? Who would notice what he wore? But I want him to look every bit the Polish prince a name my college friends dubbed him when we began to date seriously. I paced back and forth in the closet, sliding the heavy walnut suit hangers he preferred back and forth, stopping in front of this jacket or that suit. I remember the pains Manny, the head fitter at Paul Stewart, took to ensure that the fit of his jackets was perfect. He knew just how much padding would equalize the one-inch difference between Ray's right and left shoulders, the cost of carrying his heavy medical bag on eight to 10 house calls a day. I finally select a navy blazer with beautiful gold buttons, a blue and white striped shirt, and a crimson blue and white paisley tie. I always had the last word about the shirts and ties. Ray was a Polish immigrant and a Holocaust survivor. After he was liberated from a Nazi concentration camp, he was sent to a displaced persons camp outside of Munich. He attended Ludwig Maximilian University's medical school in Munich, graduated in 1950, and emigrated to the United States. 
When he came to New York, he spoke very little English and understood even less. Two or three movies a day taught him enough to pass the exams he needed to continue his medical studies, but the English language continued to trip him up for the 40 years we were married. Sometimes the words just don't make sense. I remember Mort Green and his wife inviting me to dinner at a fancy restaurant, he said, smiling at the memory. Mort had more house calls a day than any general practitioner in Queens, and he let me cover for him on the weekends. I needed the money, and I needed that dinner, too. I suppose I was what people called a greener, meaning an unrefined, newly arrived immigrant. A lot of the food on the menu was unfamiliar to me until I spotted halibut steak. I absolutely knew what steak was. <laughs> he laughed, remembering how he forced himself to eat the fish, a food he avoided throughout our marriage. So why am I bent over, snipping here and there, making things neat, sprucing up plants whose lives are spent because words sometimes just don't make sense. Ellen Denner, known to her friends as Ricky, attended the High School of Music and Art, the Juilliard School of Music, Mount Holyoke College, and the New School for Social Research. Formerly a writer and editor at McKinsey & Company, Ellen has attended workshops at the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, Massachusetts, and is a trustee at Master Voices, where the human voice is considered the world's most powerful instrument. She divides her time between New York City and Cape Cod and is at work on a collection of essays. If you're in the podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts, so follow this one. If you're listening on the Read 650 website and want to get each episode of the show delivered to you, along with a deep dish pizza, download any podcast app and search for Read 650, then follow the show. We release new episodes every Writer Wednesday. Read 650's executive producer is Richard Kolak. I'm your host and Read 650's founder and executive editor. Our editorial team is Stephen Lewis, David Masello, and Lisa Donati-Mayer. Our show was produced with invaluable assistance from Jim Russick and Sarah Caldwell. We'll be back with writer Colin Broderick and Between the Lines after a short break. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Support for Read 650 comes from City Winery, a fully functioning urban winery offering intimate concerts, food and wine classes, private events, and fine dining. City Winery strives to deliver the highest end combined culinary and cultural experiences to guests passionate about sharing wine, music, and good food. City Winery brings the wine country experience to the city. View the complete event schedule at citywinery.com. I should mention here that our announcer, Fran Tuno, is a seasoned and professional writer and voice actress available for freelance voice work. She will exceed your expectations, and you can learn more about her at frantuno.com. That's Fran, T-U-N-N-O, dot com. Colin Broderick was raised Irish Catholic in the heart of Northern Ireland. In 1988, at the age of 20, he moved to the Bronx to drink, work construction, and pursue his dream of becoming a writer. For the next 20 years, as he drank himself into oblivion, 
There were failed marriages, car wrecks, hospitals, and jail cells. But his story doesn't end there. For today's Between the Lines segment, here's Colin Broderick, recorded on stage at City Winery, reading An Irish Writer in New York. The New York I arrived in 28 years ago was one of abandoned buildings, battered window shades and blackened shells along the highway. Uptown was boombox, squeegee men and sneaker wars. Down on the juice there were shilling sleaze and switchblades for as cheap as a buck. Pickpockets, peddlers and preachers stood shoulder to shoulder with ruddy-faced Irish-American cops too outnumbered and sweaty to give a goddamn. Back then, 42nd Street was a scabbed vein so pockmarked and contaminated it was practically its own ecosystem. <laughs> Downtown was squatters' rights, artists, dope dealers, alongside old-school Eastern European grandmothers in headscarves lugging shopping bags up 2nd Avenue. Streetwalkers, bold as peacocks, preened themselves on the cobblestone streets of the West Village, while over around St. Mark's, pale-faced boys in skinny pants and mohawks graffitied shuttered tenement walls and nodded out in Tompkins Square Park. New York City was a city of shadows and ghosts and blocks you didn't dare venture down alone. It was a town that felt lived in, a town with an active working class. Madness and danger were a staple of everyday life, not that it was easy. It was a hustle. It was a dodge and a weave, blindfolded and drunk through a minefield, each new step possibly your last. But man, was it alive. An urban landscape so rich in story that words practically rained down off the fire escapes like rust chips and danced their way into my soul in ready-made paragraphs. Being young and Irish in New York, I was bequeathed the added romance of a literary heritage, even if I didn't fully understand it back then. New York is where Irish literature comes to get its passport stamped. As a young writer, I had a dream that one day I would see my name on the spine of a book on a shelf wedged next to Banville and Behan. There was only one small catch. I couldn't write. I could drink, though. <laughs> Boy, could I drink. So I drank. I worked construction. I fell in love and out of love. And marriages, like a man possessed. In the summer of 2006, I was 38 years old, living in a fifth-floor walk-up in Hell's Kitchen. I weighed 115 pounds. I was unemployable. I was somehow surviving on a diet of beer, vodka, weed, and cocaine. In my alcoholic madness, I had been stabbed, beaten, jailed, hospitalized. The idea of taking a swan dive off my fifth-floor balcony onto Ninth Avenue had begun to haunt me as a viable alternative to the chorus of demons that plagued my every waking thought. One night, laying in the dark alone, sipping whiskey, listening to the blare of traffic below my window, I finally understood that this was the place right before death. If something didn't change soon, they would find me here on the floor of this apartment, surrounded by empty bottles. This was the end. It had to be. I moved to a friend's farmhouse upstate and began to write like my life depended upon it. It did. 
Within a year, I'd sold my drinking memoir to Orangutan to Random House. Over the last 11 years without a drink, I published three books, directed two of my own plays, saw my name in the New Yorker and the New York Times, took the stage at Lincoln Center to read my own work. I wrote and directed two feature movies. I met my wife and I became a father to a girl and then a boy. I am not rich. I am not a household name author, but I am still writing. In my own roundabout way, I wound up living the very life that I'd always dreamed might be possible. I am an Irish writer in New York. Few people who have been a slave to an addiction as vicious, destructive, and unrelenting as Colin Broderick's have lived to tell the tale. His memoir, Orangutan, is the story of an Irish drunk unlike any you've met before. Colin has written other books, plays, and has published articles in the Irish Echo, the Irish Voice, and the New York Times. And you can learn more at colinroderick.com. Do you have thoughts or an experience to share about writing and the writing life? Well, then consider contributing a Between the Lines segment. You'll find details at the Submissions tab on our website, read650.org, and you'll find open submission calls for other upcoming shows. You might already know that Read 650 is a nonprofit organization with a mission to promote writers, but you might not know we're also a growing and vibrant community of talented writers, as well as passionate readers and listeners, and we'd love for you to join us. Visit our website for details on how to submit your Between the Lines story and to review open submission prompts and see if something inspires you to write an original personal story or dust off and tune up something lurking somewhere in one of your journals. It could even be something you've already published. Scroll to the bottom of our homepage at read650.org and share your contact to receive our semi-weekly newsletter. I'll share information about upcoming events and open prompts, but I will never share your email address. And you can unsubscribe at any time with a single click. If this sounds good to you and you'd like to be part of our community, then please join us because we'd love to have you and we'd love to promote your good work. That's our show for today. Thanks again to writers Anna Perret, Mihai Grunfeld, Ricky Denner, and Colin Broderick. Thanks so much for listening today and for helping to spread the word about the spoken word. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650.